Hello and welcome to Will We We Make Make It Out Alive? I'm Amy, the poop detective. And I'm Jen, the magical mapper. It even says so on my shirt. Uh, It actually says made of magic. Same thing. Basically. This is episode 15 and we just had our one year anniversary. (gasps) Aww. Well, at least for starting posting things. We didn't actually start the podcast until December. Mm-hmm. So we, we haven't quite been going a year, but we're already at 15. Wow. So this is episode 15, a culvert operation. Ooh. Swimming upstream with the fishes. Will we make it out alive? So what are we going to be talking about today? It's going to be off the hizzy. Today we will be hook. Today we will be bringing you a culvert operation. We will be learning more about culvert replacement prioritization in the Wenatchee watershed. We will also discuss GIS flow networks and how they play a role in the prioritization tool. We will be interviewing Robin Pepin of Aspect Consulting, our first interview, and we decided to do it long distance because we love a challenge. Woohoo! And she helped develop a GIS tool that more effectively evaluates culverts for removal than the existing ranking systems. And we're really excited to talk to her about that. Very excited. As you may be able to guess, removing culverts is very beneficial for salmon. Uh, <laughs> hey, Amy. Hey, what? Where do fish keep their money? In their fish pockets? In a river bank. <laughs> <laughs> Trixies. Uh-huh. Well, we realize that we haven't introduced all of the intricacies of the salmon and their life cycle. We hope to help illuminate them (laughs) in a future episode. We might even try to interview someone again. Although we did have some technical challenges with our long distance recording, we hope that it is still enjoyable to listen to. So feel free to let us know in the comments. We would love feedback on this. Love feedback. Today, we'd like to welcome Robin Pepin to our episode. Of course, this is super exciting for us since it's the first time we're doing a live interview. So exciting! We thought we would make it even more challenging and decided that we'd do a long-distance live interview for our very first one. If you listened to our little mini interlude last month, you'll know that we had initially hoped on releasing this last month, but we had some technical difficulties and... We didn't want to make you guys listen to something that was painful. So with any luck, hopefully this time it'll work. Yes, and we're interviewing Robin for work she's participated in related to ranking streams for culvert replacement. And it's actually a really cool project. And I'm really excited to talk to Robin about it. Mm. The current practice is to rank streams and culverts uses data that's coarse and imperfect and, and it doesn't create a very ideal ranking. But before we get into that, Robin, welcome. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. It's very exciting. Let's start with how about you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So um, to kind of step way back a little bit, uh, my undergrad is actually in environmental engineering. And I learned pretty quickly that engineering wasn't the right way to go. So when I went to grad school, I focused on ecology 
And let's uh, and then, let's back that truck up just a little bit here. Uh, <laughs> why did you decide that engineering was not the right direction to go? <laughs> it turned out I was pretty good at the math component of engineering, uh, which so I was encouraged to stay focused on that track. But turns out I like to see pretty pictures and be like out in the world seeing and doing things, not behind a computer or a design tool. Very interesting. Thank you for elaborating on that a little bit. So actually, that's what brought me to Washington was wanting to focus more on ecology and sort of that more analytical, how do I get my hands dirty playing outside and maybe saving the world one day. And throughout all that, GIS was part of internships and research positions. So I sort of fell into a GIS position working with Jen when I graduated from grad school. And from there, that just kept going as the career that I wanted. And I started Aspect a little while after that. And now I've been here for about five years doing anything and everything GIS as far as spatial analysis. Can you tell us a little bit about what Aspect is? Aspect Consulting, we're an environmental consulting firm who also focuses on geotechnical engineering and water resources projects. So we work primarily in the Pacific Northwest, a few other projects throughout the country. And we focus on all sorts of things related to environmental contamination or landslide stability projects, and then the water resources, water rights side of things. Very cool. Yeah, it's certainly flown by for me. I mean, the, the biggest benefit to working in GIS is the variety of things I get to do every day. So having that dynamic work environment, for me personally, has just been really thrilling and fun. And it sounds like at Aspect, you're actually getting to save the world a little bit. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly trying to. That's, that's <laughs> the goal here, uh, is to at least play a role in that. So recently, I sort of developed some of my own GIS-specific projects. Generally, my position is supporting the other portions of the company. And more and more now, I'm just providing GIS support for other clients. So typically the work that you do is GIS related. I, I know for this project in particular, you kind of help develop a tool, but prior to this project, is that similar to the type of work that you did with Aspect or have you done other types of work with them also? My tasks at Aspect like I said, have a really wide ranging effect. There's things like managing our mobile data collection systems and setting up GPS units for the field. It's making pretty maps. I mean, that's a large portion of what we do is support stories for, for any of the other groups in our company and making sure that they can kind of effectively tell their stories and show whatever they're trying to show, whether it's contamination extends or cleanup results, or is this house going to fall into the water one day? <laughs> you know, lots of different things. And in addition to that, we always try to, like in our group in particular, we try to develop workflows that just make life better, whether it's internal for us so that things are more efficient or whether it's developing workflows or custom models for our clients so that they can run their own. So basically taking that technology and making it work and be effective and answer questions that would otherwise take us a long time to probably answer. <laughs> Absolutely. I think efficiency and clarity is kind of the name of the game. Yes. I like efficiency. And so clarity. Do I. <laughs> <laughs> so for the project that we're talking to you about today, can you explain it a little bit and tell us what are the main goals of this project? Sure. So this is one of the favorite projects that I've worked on since my time at Aspect. And it's a fish barrier removal prioritization tool, which is a, a mouthful of a way of saying, how do we decide which fish barriers, which are typically culverts, do we remove, spend our money on? We've got limited time. We've got limited people. To be able to do these things, how do we most effectively spend that time and money? 
So I started working with the Upper Columbia Salmon Recovery Board as a GIS on call just to help support their day to day. And in starting that project, we were talking about like what ideally would she do with GIS? And she said, you know, I really feel like there's a better way to do this prioritization that we have to do. It's a requirement for the board to have this prioritization scheme in place in order to qualify for certain funding. So through the Upper Columbia Salmon Recovery Board, as I said, and the Cascade Columbia Fisheries Enhancement Group, as well as a regional technical team, which is made up of all sorts of tribal influences and other smaller groups that are conservation oriented in the Upper Columbia. So with are, the, are the local governments involved in that process as well? County or cities? There are a few county groups that are involved as well. This is kind of a, a wide ranging technical group. Anyone who has the time to contribute is welcome to, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. You know, I want this to be a project that works for everybody in the best way that it can. So as we kind of all collaborated to create this, this GIS tool that helps to quickly and efficiently, like we talked about before, rank these barriers about which ones do we go and try to remove or improve first. So the main goal of the project is to prioritize these fish barriers for removal. For removal. Mm -hmm. Wow. And your the main role that you played was uh, kind of helping to develop the tool to do that more efficiently and effectively. Correct. So I developed this GIS model. It's, it's several model steps that help to automate this calculation and make basically make an apples to apples comparison across each barrier. So it's looking at any biological conditions surrounding the barrier. How much habitat is upstream? Is there another barrier downstream that would block fish from getting to it anyways. Is there adequate canopy cover? All sorts of things like that. This is where that collaboration from the regional technical team came in. We all decided which metrics we cared about, how can we best represent those metrics, and do we have the data to help show what those metrics are. So kind of getting to the endpoint there, then uh, what species is the tool currently developed for? And how easy might it be to adapt to other species? So currently in the Upper Columbia, their focus is on Chinook salmon, steelhead, and bull trout. Those are the three primary ones there. You can absolutely adapt this to other regions and to other species. That was the point of the tools. So hopefully that's something that could be used or at least easily adapted by other groups in the future. It just depends on the input data that you have. Is the input data between the different species that you're currently looking at significantly different? Or is it pretty similar with a few nuances? There are some metrics that are the same across all species. So things like how connected is the barrier to other barriers. Those, of course, are, are obviously... Will impact any species. Right. Intrinsic potential is the name of this, this metric. It's basically potential habitat for each species. And that can vary. Each species has slightly different temperature requirements, canopy cover requirements. Some are more robust than others. So that's the layer that really tends to throw it one way or the other for species as to whether or not it's a high priority. And it sounds like you can probably just do some tweaking then on those the levels that are set within the model for those parameters and adapt it to a different species then. Correct. So you would input a different intrinsic potential layer or maybe come up with a different representation of potential habitat for your particular species. What do you call a fish with no eyes? I don't know. What? <laughs> 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 From what I understand of this tool, it actually gives a, a ranking to each factor, each of four factors. 
It does. Uh, there, there are more than four factors. There's about 15 different metrics, I think, that go oh, into okay. it. You end up with, you know, this feature class out of ArcMap or really retranslate it to an Excel table so that's a little bit more accessible for the group. And you can look at all the raw data values that are calculated from the GIS model. And then in, within that spreadsheet, we also calculate sort of an automatic scoring scheme. So basically, if metric gets a value out of five, one through five, or maybe zero. We really want to make sure it's eliminated <laughs> uh, from the overall calculation. And that gives you a total score. There's a score per species. So it's out of 100 for those species, or you could add them all up together to get a total score. Um, you know, some groups have different focuses. Some might really only prioritize steelhead, for example, while others might want to look at the larger picture of saving salmon in general, looking at all three species at once. That sounds so cool. Right. <laughs> and the goal of that, so there's this web map that folks can look at and it groups the barriers. So the top maybe 25% is your highest priority. And you can go in and look at that. It still requires a manual, like a human element of somebody going in and saying, realistically, which one of these is best to look at. But through the tool, you kind of narrow it down to like, which ones do we need to prioritize? And it gives you an immediate, here are the reasons why this is a priority, not just, I think this one seems right. Is funding built into the tool at all? Not yet. That's actually one of the next steps that we've been talking about developing, maybe not so much funding, but how much is it going to cost to remove the barriers? If there's a way to sort of simulate that or kind of create a grand scale estimate, that's the next step for this tool. About how long have you been working on this project? It took about a year to get the full, the final scoring scheme settled on for the group. The development of the actual model was closer to about three months and then it's just been tweaking it ever since. And it sounds like Continuing to tweak it as data becomes better is something that you're planning on doing or? Absolutely. It's, it's a dynamic tool. So as we get better data, we can go ahead and adapt the models need be or just swap in the new data set. And ideally, this tool will be run maybe once a year or so. You know, as you remove barriers, that priority ranking is going to change for other barriers. So it's, it's something that's worthwhile to rerun periodically to make sure that you're looking at the best projects you've got. Kind of getting back to what you were talking about, that you had been meeting with this group for a year to figure out which data sets they were going to use and how they were going to rank all that. How did that group make decisions? So bringing these decisions to the group actually came through a little bit of facilitation effort on my part. So things like producing web maps to show here's the data that we've got. Really what I found works well in this sort of situation is to have something that you think works pretty well. And for somebody to scrutinize versus like, hey, let's start from scratch and go from there. So building up that trust, like here's these visual comparisons of what I got. We actually ran the tool. And then when we found scores that didn't make sense, that's how we went through and troubleshooted the data that went into the model. Awesome. So you really have had some checks and balances on it already. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely been scrutinized. And it's something that, that should continue to be scrutinized. There's a lot of factors that go into funding barrier removal. So this is just one small piece of that. What have been major obstacles for this project? Or have you had any? I, I think you've already hinted at it and just getting a group of that many people to agree on something. It's hard. They all do have different priorities. Right. And using a tool that works as far as funding decisions that they all agree upon is helpful, but also how can they use it best within their own organizations? those priorities are going to change. And hopefully the tool now is adaptable enough and transparent enough that you can take the pieces that you need for your own particular. And I will say that this, I mean, for me professionally in my life, 
one of the more satisfying things is working in these watershed or salmon groups where you really get the opportunity to hear people with, like you're saying, very different needs and wants and how they want to see things done, but you work together as a group to come up with a path forward. And it's, I think it's very powerful. And I don't know that that exists in a lot of other places between governments and tribes and citizen groups. Probably there is, but I'm just familiar with those because that's in my world. But it, it's very powerful, I think. I absolutely agree. I mean, having something that anybody can look at and interpret, I mean, that's that's what GIS is really good at, right? Is making a pretty picture, summarizing what could be complicated math or analysis steps into something that ultimately you have a map that's just green, yellow, red dots about which one, where do you start looking? Right. And having it something so complex simplified down into a, here's where you start with this, with answering this question, I think is, is huge. Yeah. Uh, if you could change, one thing about the project, what would it be? <laughs> I think this is every GISer's dream. It's, it's to have great input data. I mean, it, garbage in, garbage out is kind of the, the standard phrase that I think we bring up a lot. And it's only as good as the data that we've got here. So as I said, there's, there's kind of a dual balance to this tool. It helps answer questions, but it also helps let us know where our data gaps are. Where do you spend funding and field efforts to make sure that we have the data that we need to answer these questions? But yeah, if I could have perfect data and unlimited time to make it perfect. Yeah, wouldn't that make all of our lives so much easier? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> if there was another organization that was interested in implementing this model in their watershed, what would be the next steps for them to take? Well, a lot of that depends on available resources for those groups. If there's GIS staff and capacity in-house, I think that that's a great tool and that's somewhere that they can start talking to your GIS staff. This is something that anybody can really pull together if they've got any sort of modeling know-how. Otherwise, you can do things like contact someone like me, who's a consultant with GIS experience, who can bring in the sort of development skills. You can also do something like talk to Upper Columbia Salmon Recovery Board or DFW, other groups that I've worked with who have a similar tool like this, and they might be able to help you get it. Awesome. So on every episode, we talk about one GIS tool. Do you have a tool that you used in this project that you'd like to share? I think the most important and unique tool for this model is the flow network tracing that uses a lot of different calculations. That's where I think GIS really comes into fruition. That's where we have the most efficiencies in this tool. Your other options are to have you know, maybe an intern with a string on a map trying to calculate how much habitat each barrier releases. Rather, you kind of the tool do all that work for you. Can you tell us a little more about how the tool works? So the flow network tracing tool uh, relies on what's called a flow-enabled network, and that means that you have lines and dots essentially connected in a, in a flow smart way, so it knows which way is upstream and which way is downstream. And you can do things, in my tool in particular, you click on a barrier, say, all right, trace upstream and tell me how many barriers I have left up there. And it'll go upstream, and then you can run all sorts of statistics on what you've just selected. What types of questions can you answer? So most important for this fish barrier work is the question of, is there a blocked barrier downstream? So what's the point in removing barrier A if barrier B is downstream and fish can't get past it anyways? So mm -hmm. my understanding that how many barriers you have downstream, as well as how passable those are to different fish species, then that kind of allows you to, to really answer a question that isn't answered in any other way currently in Washington State. 
And I will say that that has definitely been something that I've heard from people out there in the world that are involved somehow kind of in these like watershed groups where they will complain a lot about why are we removing X, Y, or Z barrier when fish can't even get to that spot. And although sometimes I think if it's a major construction project, you're already opening up the road, it might make sense to do it anyways, just cost-wise, because that still might be cost-effective. But that kind of public perception that says that, hey, no, we are paying attention to this and we're trying to get them from down below and not open up areas six miles upstream that the fish are never going to get to anyways or not until we get all these other barriers removed, I think really helps build that trust that we're spending the money appropriately and doing this in a logical way that other people can understand. Untangling that story is really what this tool is trying to do. How streams are connected isn't necessarily apparent just by looking at lines on a map. And so by having this more intelligent geometric network built into this model, you don't have to worry about, is the stream flowing into that stream? It already knows. In order to run the flow network tool, what are the prerequisites? Like what types of data sets do you have to have? And what do you have to do to your data before you can run the tool? Well, in this case, we heavily relied on the National Hydrography data set that's actually already flow-enabled and is a very highly detailed stream network across any state in the country. It's that's the National Hydrography data set. Hence the, the national part of it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's break it down for our listeners out there. Uh, in order for the flow network calculations to work correctly, there's a lot of data cleanup that needs to happen. Your lines need to be connected. Your dots need to be snapped together. As far as enabling the tool, you just need lines that are directionally intelligent. One of the benefits of having a flow network established is that you can actually use it to QC your data and improve those flow connections to make sure things are traveling in the right direction. But in this case, we have the National Hydrography data set for our streamlines, which are already flow enabled and ready to go into a network. And what other types of data sets go into your model? There's a lot of different data. Uh, I think most critical to this tool, other than the streamlines themselves, are things like the barriers themselves. There's a, a standard state protocol for surveying barriers that is being completed across the state. It's in various states, depending on which region you're in, so how complete it is and how up-to-date to the latest survey protocol all of that is. And until you have that, this tool is, isn't really going to do a whole lot for you. In addition to that, we use intrinsic potential and other habitat related metrics, things like there's modeled canopy cover, stream temperature, any of row density is another one to kind of indicate whether or not there's too much sediment in the water. Anything we can kind of do to look at a regional scale of what's going on at these barriers. And so of the different types of data that you just listed, do you think most areas have that information more or less readily available now, or are there still a lot of gaps for that type of information? Throughout the state, it, it does vary. Many of these are statewide or national data sets, which has the benefit of they're consistent across the state, but then the downside of their a more coarse scale and might not fully represent each region once you start looking more at a base and wide scale. So there's pluses and minuses there. The idea, again, is that this tool is adaptable, so we have a better data set in some basins versus others. Maybe, maybe there was a basin-wide stream temperature survey. So we have really great stream temperature data, mm -hmm. whereas other ones are relying on this model data, which may or may not be great. Right. There's definitely a variety, but the idea was we knew that we'd have changing data and improved data that 
could go into this. So that's where the adaptability comes in. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of where the culverts or barriers are on a map versus the NHD streamline? So as, as I mentioned, the, the barriers need to be what's called snapped to the line. So they're actually touching it in, in a digital sense. They're all connected. So basically what you're talking about here is we have these NHD lines, which are, I mean, they are modeled lines, right? They're not actually drawn based off of field data, correct? It varies. They try to take the best available data that they've got. So, So, I I mean, there's areas I'm familiar with where certainly they're not 100% accurate, but also I don't know if you guys are familiar with this or not, but streams and rivers move. I was just about to say that. (laughs) So, yeah, if you're not keeping it up to date. And then also that's just the mid line of the stream, right? So that doesn't necessarily tell you where that barrier is compared to where the actual stream channel is. Right. So the important steps as far as these calculations go is that the barrier is connected to the streamline. Again, we're looking at a regional view. So whether or not we're super precise about where that barrier is or where that streamline is compared to getting the big picture of what is surrounding that barrier. Run through, basically. That's one of the compromises we made. We thought it was more important to have sort of this regional apples to apples comparison versus a, well, we have great data, this one particular barrier, so we'll try to use that. But then maybe at this barrier, we don't have that information. It was more important to be consistent across the region so long as it was reasonably accurate with, with field knowledge that we had. Yeah, so when you snapped the barriers to the streamlines, was there a QAQC to that process kind of to make sure that they more or less were going where you thought they should? Uh, This is definitely the most intensive data cleanup portion of the model to be sure that this was correct. There's absolutely, it was a manual process. Wow. We did try to do as, as much automatic snapping as you can, but if you've got a barrier that snaps to a main stem of a river versus Maybe it's a little tiny tributary that's not even mapped in NHD. As you mentioned, it could be, you know, maybe Farmer Joe has a little tiny culver of a little tiny stream on his property. That's a barrier that you don't want to be put in the way of other barriers um, as far as the main stem goes. So there's definitely some manual checking to make sure that things are done. And so is that work that you did or did somebody else within the group do that? Or how did that get done? Uh, that was done between me and Upper Columbia Sand Recovery Board. We kind of tag teamed that effort to do as much automated cleanup as we could and then go back through. You know, these folks are out in the field every day and they know what they're looking at. So it's very much easier, more right. efficient for them to see it than me. So we took a, a team effort on that. And about how long do you think that took for your area? I'm I'm guessing that took a considerable amount of time. Well, in the Wenatchee, there are about 400 barriers that we were looking at, which actually is pretty small. In most basins, I think you're looking more at like the two to 3,000 wow. barriers in many basins in Washington state. And that probably took a few days worth of effort to do. We were pretty fortunate that a lot of these barriers had that updated survey. So we knew the name of the stream they were supposed to be on. And that had a big impact on how well this worked. So awesome. Right. That can really vary from maybe an afternoon's worth of work right. to weeks where the work different groups create certain data sets they have their own needs so they collect what they need and so then trying to make it all fit in one model making it portable having consistent data standard inputs yeah. would assist in that is that something that you were 
thinking about doing as a next step in this process? I think that if I were to kind of take any step that I could, as far as making this tool more available and easy to use, I would want to create a, a field data protocol, whether that's through a mobile app that folks can use or setting up a GPS system, any of that sort of information, establishing a workflow that can help folks create this data and also understand which questions they want to ask, like which metrics are important to them. Starting that whole process, I think, would be how I would approach this if there were a statewide effort to do this. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention about the project or anything that we maybe forgot to ask that you'd like to highlight? I just think I'd like to reemphasize the benefit of being transparent and open about what your tool is doing. So crucial to build trust with this group was just literally opening up the model in front of them. And, and most of the folks here didn't know which buttons to press or what the names of the tools were in ArcMap. And they didn't need to know that, but they did need to know that I was doing what they expected me to do and that they could understand the general process. And just being open with that and, and showing this flow network model and how it worked, that really was the most critical part of this whole tool. Great. So changing direction a little bit, who would win in a fight, a trash panda or a farmed salmon? Uh, you got to go a trash panda on that one. Those farmed salmon, you never know what they're going to be. <laughs> <laughs> Full of sea lice, that's what they're going to be. <laughs> Maybe a little too diseased to win any fight. And where would be a good place to hide out during a zombie apocalypse? You know, I was really thinking about this question before we talked. I was like, what is the best answer? And I'm pretty sure we need some spatial analysis to figure out this question. Right? Oh my goodness. Yes. Framework, I'm pretty sure we can adapt it to figure out zombie apocalypse. What? Yes. This is what I'm talking about. We will use GIS to determine where the best place to hide out during a zombie apocalypse is. First, we have to figure out what metrics we need yeah <laughs> i'm on it don't worry we can make this happen <laughs> huh. i wonder if this has been done yet Let's yeah see. we should probably google that and then lastly will we make it out alive some of us will interesting dun 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 is that like because they're gonna take our brains out of our bodies and put them into new bodies <laughs> Reincarnate. i was just gonna say like of the three of us, some of us. <laughs> I don't think it's not going to place bets on you, or at least not in front of you two. But well, thank you very much for joining us today. It's uh, been so exciting to actually live. I mean, we've interviewed some people before, but not lie? where we recorded them, Jen. All right. Well, thank you so much, Robin. So there you have it. The end of episode fifteen. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and that we have inspired you yet again to make it out alive. In this episode, we discussed a little more about how to use GIS to prioritize fish barrier removal. What it looks like to work in an interdisciplinary team with flow networks and how GIS ties it all together. We hope our streaming interview wasn't too choppy. <laughs> <laughs> Please join us for our next episode, which is part one of this two-part episode. With this episode being part two. Right. Yeah, you know, because we're good at math. Yeah. Anyway, our next episode, Why Did the Salmon Swim Upstream? Or 
why fish barrier removal is important and required for salmon survival. Ooh, that sounds exciting. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like TuneIn, CastBox, Himalaya, iHeartRadio, I don't know, maybe some other ones out there. Probably some other ones. Please let us know what you think at outalivepodcast.com or on our Facebook page, Will We Make It Out Alive? Also, if you are more visually inclined, check out our YouTube page. Until next time. If there is a next time. What? Will we make it out alive? I'm Amy the Poop Detective. And I'm Jen the Magical Mapper. Glad you raised your hand when you said that. It was actually just my finger and then you copied me. (laughs) I'm signing off. Well, I'm signing off too. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hasta luego. Hasta lugo. (laughs) You're done to me. I don't think Jen will make it out alive. I'm sad to report. Until next time, when it's just Amy the Poop Detective. (laughs) 